um, Acts 18, we, uh, we finished up there last week, and uh, we're going to pick up and finish the, the chapter, Acts 18. And I think we're going to get through 19 tonight, so it'll be fun. Don't get tired. Don't get bored. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word, and we ask that you guide and direct us and fill us and use us, Lord. We yield to what you desire in our lives, and we submit, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before we start, I want to <clears throat> just say this, that um, this little church, interestingly enough, has been mightily used to the Lord. And um, so you saw the uh, Iowa caucus on Tuesday, and uh, they said that if, if the uh, voter turnout was above, you can correct me on this, Ryan, 130,000, I think, that Donald Trump would have an overwhelming win. Um, but if it stayed under 130,000, which is the record, then um, it, Cruz would have a slight chance. Well, the, the voter turnout was 175,000, the largest in Iowa history, uh, the turnout. And Cruz won by four percentage points, uh, which there was an 8% increase in evangelical turnout. So the reason why I say that is, We've taken a number of trips to Iowa and done these ARP events that we've been praying over, and you guys on the Sunday nights have been praying over. And part of that is because of the council race and the, the assembly race and getting pastors to run for office, we've been working with these pastors in the Iowa area, and they got out the vote. Um, 175 pastors of churches uh, just pushed it, and an 8% increase, which as you can see, uh, the estimate is 65 to 85 million evangelicals in America, and in a presidential election, 25% of them vote, and in a non-presidential election, it's 12.5%. So across the country, 730,000 offices are up for election pretty, pretty much during an election year, and, um, and usually you, we lose an election by 8 million votes, which if you move that constituency, you dominate every election in the country. Well, we just proved by four percentage points, outspent, et cetera, that that can happen. And, that's, and, and they don't even want to say that he won. They're celebrating the third place winner, which is Rubio, because he's an establishment guy. They do not want to see grassroots. They don't want to see uh, a move of God's spirit and changing a culture. And yet Iowa, New Hampshire is going to be harder, but South Carolina, that's the one we need to pray about, because that's going to be the bellwether. Now, this is what's interesting, is because Christians have gotten involved, and they've stepped into the arena, in the public arena, which they've abdicated since 1954. Stepping into the public arena and engaging in this, um, and good government comes with good people, and good people being active in the process. Uh-oh. Did you hear that? It's the biggest rat I've ever heard in all my life. Tony, don't do it. Uh, so so Christians getting involved and being active in the process uh, what, what's occurred in the, in, in, the, in the scheme of things is that we used to get uh, a moderate um, because evangelicals would be split over Santorum or they'd, they'd put in Fred Thompson running against Huckabee and they would split the evangelical vote because the establishment knew how to do that. Well, now, because there's a unit, unity happening and a push and a, um, an education occurring in these, in these pulpits in America... They're, they're unifying behind candidates. And so what's happened is uh, one party has pushed to the right. So the establishment candidate, I would have never have expected this probably in my latter lifetime, the, the establishment candidate is Marco Rubio, which 
if you've noticed, we've had McCain, we've had Dole, we've had Romney, all left of center. Rubio's right of center. And with a biblical foundation, a biblical basis, I've I've heard him speak to pastors, and he's going to participate in some of our renewal events as well. And Ted Cruz is participating. We've we've put the message out to Trump. He hasn't responded, and so it, it is it it really is going to be a bellwether event. And it all occurred from this little fellowship and God's people praying and interacting. And it's a it's a fascinating thing to me. Um, and and amazing thing happen amazing things happen when you pray. Now tonight we're going to take a look at a portion of scripture that is a revival in a city, uh, and, and it, it, we can call it the city of Ephesus, but you might as well just call it the city of Thousand Oaks. And and I want to read this quote to you, and I love this quote, and listen to it before we begin reading. The gospel never touches the culture. All right, listen. The gospel never touches the culture without first confronting its idols. The gospel never confronts a culture without first confronting its idols. So just stop for a minute and think about idols in our culture. Football, um, television, uh, politics, politics is an idol. And how do you distinguish that you're serving an idol as opposed to serving God? Because can you be a football player and not worship an idol? Yeah. Can you enjoy football and not worship it as an idol? Yeah. Can you be engaged in politics and not see it as an idol? Yeah. Can the church be an idol? Mm-hmm. Can ministry be an idol? You bet. Can marriage be an idol? Yes. Relationships? Absolutely. Anything that you're willing to compromise and lie about? is probably an idol. To further your career, to just soften it a little bit and, and couch the truth and innuendo or subtle deception is probably an idol. Now, let me correct it. It is an idol. Anything that you would, would reject the Lord on in, in order to further whatever it is that you're investing in is probably an idol. And so tonight we're going to see an entire city confronted, but before the city's confronted, the brethren are confronted. And there's a, there's a radical change in the hearts of believers. But we're going to take a look at <clears throat> the power of this. And uh, so open up to Acts 18. If you don't have a Bible, these, these guys will get you one. Just raise your hand, they'll give you a Bible. Acts 18. Looks like everybody has a Bible tonight. It's Wednesday night. I like it. Good. All right. Stand down, fellas. All right. Acts chapter 18, verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while, and then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and uh, Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut, uh, had his hair cut off at uh, Sancria, for he had taken a vow. It's probably a Nazarite vow where he doesn't cut his hair and he doesn't touch wine. And we don't know why, but, but Paul made this vow, and uh, the, the, he had obviously uh, done the extended amount of time and sought from the Lord and received whatever it was he was seeking. It's kind of like fasting. And at that point, he cuts his hair to signal the end of that vow, that Nazarite vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, when Paul when Paul wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus, um, excuse me, yeah, when Paul was in Corinth, he was writing the letter to the church in Ephesus. And here Luke is, is reflecting in the book of Acts, and Paul's traveling into Ephesus. And so it says he gets there, 
and he, and he left them there. He left Priscilla and Aquila there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay longer, a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So one of the reasons why he had to get to Jerusalem is because there's a famine. He had an offering from all the churches. We find that in other writings. And he wanted to get that offering to them, and he didn't have anyone he could trust to carry those, uh, the, the, the money to take it to Jerusalem. But he promises it'll come back to Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he'd spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order to strengthen all the disciples. So he goes back through in this, this other missionary journey, goes back through the cities he'd already touched, goes in to strengthen the brethren that he'd ministered to, and he dropped everything off in Caesarea. Then uh, he greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch, and he continues his journey back through those churches he'd already planted. Verse 24, now it, it switches and it goes from Paul and jumps back to a guy by the name of Apollos, a certain Jew named Apollos, verse 24, born at Alexandria. Uh, you know what Alexandria is? That's Egypt. It was a place of higher learning. He was an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, and he came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent uh, in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, what was John's baptism? Does anyone remember? Uh, water, but it was a baptism under repentance, right? But it was water, you're right. So it was a baptism under repentance, and so he understood repentance and changing, and he understood the way of the Lord, but all he had ever known was this baptism of, of repentance through the apostle, or through the, uh, John the Baptist. Verse 26, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they, uh, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, do you notice it doesn't say that he explained to them the way of God more accurately? It says they. So does that mean that both of them taught him? Yeah, good. Bailey's paying attention. Does that mean both of them taught him? Yes. So what do we have here? We have a woman teaching what? A, a, a woman teaching a man. So for those of you who think, well, a woman is not allowed to teach. Well, here you have a woman teaching a man. You can process that any way you like. Verse 27, and when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So Aquila and Priscilla mightily train and disciple this guy to the point where when he hits the ground in a brand new town, he is so prepared that he lights that place up. And, and uh, many believe through grace. So he teaches grace as opposed to the law and legalism. He teaches grace, salvation by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. He refutes the Jews publicly who believe salvation came through the observation of the law. And he showed the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So he, he presented all, and the only scriptures he had were the Old Testament scriptures. So he's using messianic psalms, he's using messianic prophecies, and he's presenting Christ, uh, uh, Isaiah 53, and we can just go through a myriad of them. And that's what he's doing. Now, verse 19, uh, excuse me, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, so it switches again from Apollos, and they want you to know about Apollos, so it switches from Apollos, and now it goes back to Paul. It says, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. So he comes back to the city, and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, what is, what, what is, how are, how are these, these guys defined? What are they called? Read the passage and what are they called? 
It's Wednesday, so I'm going to ask questions. I want you to stay awake. Disciples. Disciples. Do they call them disciples of John? Hello? Well, they're disciples. They're disciples church-going, right? So we know them to be what? Believers, Christians. All right? There's no distinction. There's no distinction. This is important because watch what happens. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue, Jesus is the Lord, you will be saved the glory of the Father. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. What in the world then is he talking about? Because when you're saved, you become a trichotomy, um, spirit, mind, body. Um, God aligns himself. We're born again, born of the Spirit. John chapter 3. These are obviously disciples. They're obviously believers. And so what is he saying uh, when he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Yeah, this is, this is an idea that we see in scriptures of, of what we call a, um, an, an overflowing, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's a believer's baptism, which is a water baptism. There's a receiving by faith, where, where you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then there's this, this uh, idea of, of an overflowing upon the, the human heart of this. You've, you've seen the illustration I've done before where you have a cup, and you, and you put a pitcher of water next to the cup. And, and the Holy Spirit represents the pitcher. It's water, living water. It comes alongside an empty cup. The Holy Spirit is with, and that's where we call para, parallel lines, para. He's with all mankind, bringing conviction of sin. He's a restrainer of evil. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in a community can restrain evil. Laws that are godly restrain evil. Uh, even police officers, not even knowing or having a, a faith in God, the scriptures declare that they are uh, ministers of justice to execute wrath on those who would do evil. So that's the restrainer of evil. He comes alongside para, and he brings conviction of sin to the world around him. And then there's two other prepositions in the Greek in regards to a believer's relationship with the Lord. In is the Holy Spirit is in you, and so he can pour the water in the cup, and that's when you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. And then there's the Greek preposition, epi, which means upon, and you just keep pouring that pitcher of water, and what happens is it comes in and over and overflows, and it's upon you, and it just gets everywhere. And, and what happens is the effect of God in your life is that it gets on everyone around you. From your innermost being will flow torrents of living water saturating those around you. It's like when uh, a public baptism, and, and I've said this before, you, you get baptized, you come out of the water, and as soon as I come out of the water, I go over and I give Grant a hug, and what happens to Grant? He gets wet. I get it on him, right? And that's the idea of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, this baptism of love, this baptism of, of empowerment, dunamis power, affecting everyone around you, overflowing and affecting everyone around you. And I would, just ask, I would just simply ask this question for any of you who doubt the giftings of the Holy Spirit or this, this third preposition of upon you. Um, could your life be described as torrents of living water flowing from your innermost being, touching those around you, or are you just kind of dry? And, and, and God gives us supernatural gifts to accomplish a supernatural task. And so he's looking at these guys and they're working out this Christianity to the best of their ability. 
They go to Bible study every day. They study the word. They're praying. They're waiting on the Lord. They're doing all these things. They're trying to, you know, engage in the culture and they're trying to talk to people about the Lord and they're trying to follow the four spiritual laws and lead people to Christ and they're, do- and they're hitting roadblock after roadblock. They're being discouraged. They're falling back on common sins that easily beset them. They're discouraged. They, they're, they're starting to snap at each other. They know they're saved. They got their get out of a free car, but they're really not effective in their community and, and they're discouraged. And the Apostle Paul sees him. He he just, whatever it is, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and just says, uh, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because something's missing in all of your efforts. Have you ever seen a church that's so busy, but it just doesn't seem like it's accomplishing much? Have you ever seen a believer, i.e. yourself, busy and not really accomplishing much? Some days, amen. So he said to them, or they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there's a Holy Spirit. All they've ever known is God the Father, they know of Jesus Christ, but what are you talking about the Holy Spirit? What is this Holy Spirit, this, this forgotten person of the Trinity, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and this forgotten person of the Holy Spirit? And we know that the Holy Spirit, according to Romans, is the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ. We also know that the Holy Spirit uh, lifts up the name, name of Christ that all men would be drawn unto him. We also know that, that he is humble and he's a servant and he's quiet. And as a result, we don't know much about him. The scriptures speak mightily of him. We know that he's not a force. People say, have you received it? That's not a way to address a personal, uh, a, 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 a person. The Holy Spirit's a person. So when you say, have you received it? He's not a force. Uh, received what? The Holy Spirit. Have you received it? <laughs> You're like, well, received what? What do you, him. Have you received him? If you, um, I'm not so sure what you speak of. This empowerment that God brings upon you, that he gives you this supernatural strength to accomplish his task through his ability as you yield to him and, and you wait upon him and he, you're overflowing with his ability and his, and his strength. And they said to him, well, we were baptized into John's baptism just like Apollos, remember? Apollos was probably the one who taught these 12 guys before he left Ephesus to go start this work. And these guys know, well, we know John's baptism. And then verse 4 says, And Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So they, they, um, they did the best they could with what they had. And what's fascinating to me is I've found churches that may not have the world's best teachers. They may not have access to you know, seminaries or Christian radio stations or or vast libraries or internet access. You go into Uganda and some of these regions that are just out in the Netherlands and and you find churches that are just on fire. Now, they're, some of their theology is a little whacked and they're off a little bit, but doggone it, the stuff they know they're doing well with. And we know everything for the most part. We have access to countless reams of, you know, volumes of libraries and, and endless Christian broadcasts. And yet, do we apply what we've received? And here, they're applying the limited amount that they have received, and, and they, they, they're, they're touched, and Paul's touched by them. Verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came, what? Upon, that is that preposition, a P, where it, it comes upon you. It's this overflowing, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they spoke with what? Tongues, and they prophesied. They spoke with tongues and they prophesied. Some people go, that's kind of weird. I don't know about that. You know, the, it just seems like a lot of mumbo jumbo. And has anyone in the room ever seen the gift of tongues exercised 
by one person and interpreted by another. Raise your hand. Raise it high so people can see it. And I have too. Fascinating. One of the most fascinating things I've seen. I remember the very first time I witnessed it. I was at Harvest. We waited for an afterglow. Um, Tim Weeks was, was leading worship, or Alwyn Wall was leading worship. We're just waiting on the Lord. And I, I, I was a cessationist. I believe the gifts died with the apostles. And I only gone to this evening service because the girl I was with was cute. And so I was sitting with her and... Um, and and he says, you know, and I thought it was just an extended worship time. And he says, we're going to wait on the Lord to manifest himself and, and edify the church. And I, I'm like, what? And he says, and, and God's going to manifest his gifts in the body. I'm like, oh, man. I grab her hand. I go, let's go. She goes, no, 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 I want to stay. I'm like, oh, man, you're cute. Okay. It wasn't Michelle. I would have really stayed with Michelle. I mean, I probably, I, I probably would have started speaking in tongues if it was Michelle. And, and, uh, and so... I'm sitting there and I'm uncomfortable. My, you know, I'm just, I, everything in me wants to leave. And I hear this person over the left-hand side of the room. And it's a pretty crowded room. Left-hand side of the room, the person starts speaking and singing with you know, intonations and up and down. And it was real melodic. It was beautiful. And they're singing in a language I'd never heard. I don't even know what it was. And then they stop. And Alan says, we're going to wait for an interpretation. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. And waiting, waiting, and, and all of a sudden, far right side of the room, a person starts singing in the exact same kind of song, intonations, melodic, and in English. It was, it was fascinating. Now, when the gift of tongues is used and it's interpreted, I can tell you when you can discern if it's not the gift of tongues. For example, if somebody, sometimes people say, well, I have the gift of tongues and the gift of interpreting my own tongue. That's a little strange to me. I, I, I'm always cautious. Uh, it's just the way I am. I'm a shepherd and I'm looking for wolves. And, and, as, and as they do this, you'll, you'll often hear, um, I, I remember one time we were in an afterglow at a pastor's conference and uh, a woman spoke in tongues, then she interpreted. And she says, God's shepherds must repent and they must, God is saying, and, and, and uh, uh, Bill Holdridge stood up and he says, uh, you need to be quiet. That's not of the Lord. And everyone's went, and he said, I'll explain the scriptures. Whenever tongues was used in the scripture, it wasn't God talking to man. It was man talking to God. And it was always praises and hymns. And that is the gift of, you have to know the scriptures to be able to discern, because there's always going to be counterfeits. The, the room is always going to be interspersed with counterfeits and that want the benefits of the church without the transparency and honesty to be a part of the church. And that's the case. And they want to bring the attention to themselves and they want the authority to... And oftentimes, you know, I, I've, people will come and say, you know, the Lord's just spoken to me and has a word for you. And, and it's always a word that's, you know, why, why didn't God just tell me? Um, and, and oftentimes it's something that they want me to do for them. I'm always very speculative of that. And, or uh, cautious of that, excuse me. And so here they begin to speak in tongues and, and they begin to prophesy. Now what is prophecy? Prophecy is speaking the word of God boldly uh, into the next generation. So there's a prophetic voice that if you do this, this will happen. And, and people are starting to receive it and understand it. And uh, it, was, it was profound and they're touched by it. Verse 7. Now the men were about 12 in all. So a dozen of these guys get baptized in the Holy Spirit, begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. Verse 8, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. So he's in Ephesus, he's be, speaking boldly. Now three months is the longest 
tenure that Paul had had in a synagogue for the most part in Europe. And three months, he's reasoning and persuading. And they, they wouldn't kick him out. They, they endured him for three months uh, as he's persu- uh, persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. And by, the, by um, definition, the term that they use here, calling Christians or, or Christianity, the, the term they, they use for Christianity was the way, capital W. And that came from, it was a derogatory statement that came from Jesus uh, when he, I think it was in John 14, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so they're going, oh, they're members of the way. Like, he's the only way. And, uh, oh, Christianity's exclusive. And, and there's, hey, there's many ways to God. Well, there are. Every religion leads to God. Only one leads to heaven. Uh, the Bible says, appointed once for man to die, then judgment. You'll stand before God, give an account of your life. So they're, they're frustrated by this idea that it's exclusive. They're frustrated by the, the, the idea that it's absolute. They're frustrated by the idea that they're called to submit to it. And so what do they do? They harden themselves. They harden themselves. Um, there's really only two options when you're confronted with God. One is to harden yourself and, and be set in your ways to the point where you'll lie and you'll deceive and you'll cheat and you'll do whatever's necessary to get what you want. And the other is to soften yourself and to open up in transparency before God. And here, uh, they harden themselves. They don't believe. They speak evil of the way. And what is supposed to proceed from our mouth as believers, especially towards the brethren? Yeah, psalms, hymns, spiritual praises, speaking melody in your heart, one to another. And 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 are, are we to speak evil of one another and lie and gossip and slander? No. No. We've already gone through it. What is gossip? It's what you'd say behind someone's back that you wouldn't say to their face. And then uh, flattery is what you'd say to their face that you wouldn't say behind their back. Slander is, is subtle, de- de- deceiving. Uh, making things seem a certain way that they really weren't or are aren't for the sake of personal benefit. And so this is this is what's happening. They're speaking evil of the way before the multitudes and they're sowing seeds of discord and doubt. What does the Bible say about any uh, those who cause division in the body of Christ? No. It doesn't say kill them. The, the Lord hates them, yes. Michelle, what was the passage of the six things the Lord hates? Proverbs six thirteen through nineteen six things that sixteen through nineteen six six things that the Lord hates and 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 they're awful and you go through it and that is discord in the body of Christ just read that just read that and it's an abomination to God and it, and it and the Bible says mark those who cause division have nothing to do with them and so in this passage uh, you you see that they're they're sowing evil before the multitudes. And so he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Interesting name for a school to be named after, Tyrannus. Tyrannus was the teacher, but this is where you get the word tyrant. Uh, It was named after Tyrant or Tyrannus. And uh, many scholars believe it was a nickname that the students gave to the teacher. He's a tyrant. Uh, He's just a hard-charging, hard-nosed teacher. And so they went to the school of Tyrannus. And he begins to reason daily in this school. And this continued for two years. Paul just continued to teach in the city. He wasn't in the synagogue anymore. He'd been there for three months. But he stays in the school of Tyrannus and he teaches for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now the Holy Spirit 
is very present, especially with these 12 guys. You can imagine Paul's teaching. And while he's in Ephesus, you know what book he's writing? He's, or what, he's writing the epistle to First and Second Corinthians, which is all about the Holy Spirit. And he's addressing that here in Ephesus, and he's witnessing this right here and writing to them. Verse 11 now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, this is fascinating. Watch this. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. <laughs> so any of those of you who think, you know, Elvis, when he used to wipe that thing and throw it out into the crowd, and the women would faint, ooh, I have some of this sweat. I, and then when, in a few years, when we figure out the DNA, I'll be able to clone a, uh, Elvis. I don't know. But the, the handkerchief wasn't, you know, it didn't, you know, it wasn't Paul carried a hanky and blew his nose and then tr- chucked it out there, wiped the sweat and chucked it. It was a headband he wore as a tent maker. So he's sewing all day in the heat uh, in the middle, in Mediterranean sun, and he's got this headband on, or AGNC. And, and then the apron is a leather apron that he would wear while he was working as he's, you know, cutting and sewing and the like. And it had his sweat on it, and, and, and Paul couldn't make all the rounds, so they would take this and they'd bring it to them. And, and these folks with diseases would be healed. How is that possible? Is it weird? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a little weird. It's kind of interesting. Uh, the only I, I'll, I'll give you an example of how I experienced this. It's a, it's it's a a point of contact for the sake of faith. And uh, I love this story, and I always reflect, especially in this passage. Um, there was um, a, a mother, a single mother, and her daughter who attended the church in San Jose. And she was struggling as a single mom uh, and her daughter. And, and they had had conflict with each other. And they started going to church. And their lives had changed. And they were really pressing into the Lord. And they were limited income, just trying to make it work. And we had uh, a singer come in. She's actually going to come and be with us. Uh, Miranda, isn't that right, Tony? When is she coming? 14. So, so Miranda, you'll get a chance to meet her. Miranda... Um, came and she sang and she and the, and the kids really liked her and it was back when her you know it was kind of hip music and now some of you are going what is this this is old but um actually she's really good and and she was selling cds and for those of you cds are the things that are no, and and um and this this woman and her daughter bought one with the limited income they had and they would get ready in the morning before they go to school and they put the CD and they played it endlessly because they didn't have a lot of access to CDs and they're playing it and playing it and they had the songs memorized and they're real pop, catchy songs and speak of the Lord and they're really sweet. And, um, and, it, and then the CD, uh, as they were listening to it, something happened that, that changed their life. And I get this phone call um, and, and the secretary saying, you know, so-and-so is trying to get in touch with you. It's urgent. She says she has to meet, talk with a pastor. She really wants to talk with you and she's been trying to reach you all day. And so I call her up and she's, she's giddy. I mean, she's out of control, excited. And she goes, you won't ever believe this is the most amazing miracle that we've ever experienced in all of our life. We're on cloud nine the whole day. We've just been praising the Lord and, and we just feel so close to God right now. And I've never experienced this in all my life. It was just it's a move of the Holy Spirit. And, and she's, she's going on, she's talking about how God has just infused her and what they did through the course of the day and witnessing and this boldness that they had and how God had just empowered them and, and how their day is going. And she said, it all stemmed from a miracle this morning. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, well, we were listening to Miranda's CD and then it went blank at the end of the last song and we didn't hear anything as though the, the thing had turned off. And minutes went by. And then all of a sudden, our favorite song on the CD started playing in a different language. 
And then it stopped and, and, and there was nothing anymore. And we replayed it and it didn't happen again. I'm like, oh. Do you understand how crazy this is? The CD was speaking in tongues. And I said, and tell me what happened with your faith. She said, our faith. And she started going and describing all the stuff. I said, okay, now, if I give you a logical explanation for that, will it change your faith and what God's done today? And she goes, no. And I said, well, the language you heard is Italian. And it was a tribute to her mom and dad. She never told anyone it was on the CD. It was so that when they sent it to Italy, her parents who were missionaries there could hear it. And it's just that one song in Italian and it's four minutes in at the very end and no one ever knows it's there and you guys found it. Now, some of you all of a sudden go, well, it wasn't a miracle. It was a point of contact that drew them closer to the Lord and had them on fire for God. That's what these aprons and these handkerchiefs would do. So do with it as you like. Um, and then not, I'm sorry. Yeah, it has been abused. Yeah. You, you wipe your head. Did you guys hear that? There, there are televangelists that'll wipe their brow and mail it to you. Send us a big donation. If, if it's in scripture, we'll find a way to make money on it. Yeah. Don't do that. Okay. All right. Yeah, Pastor Rob spit on me when I when he was preaching. <laughs> now this is this is such a cool story. Verse thirteen. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Now what a job that is, itinerant Jewish exorcist. Hey, what are you crazy? I'm gonna I'm gonna cast that thing out of you. What are you, you sugar, I look at you crawling on the wall and your head spinning around. Come over here. I'm gonna I'm gonna fix you all up. You're crazy. You you you. You, that's a Jewish itinerant exorcist. Now it's time to go. We're here. We got to go now. Hey, three shows. Don't forget to tip your waitress. Hey. And so these itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we exercise you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. So here's what we're going to do. You, you're crazy. You, you've been worshiping up there with Diana and you've got all kinds of... And in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, you come out of them. And you think that that's powerful. The name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of the Father. One problem, especially if you're a, a, a child in a Christian home or you're, uh, or, or you're pretending to be a Christian in a church. And one problem... You may get all the benefits, but you don't have the power. And, and you're going to get beat up because watch what happens here. We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Siva and a Jewish chief priest who did so. So these, these seven sons of Siva and this chief priest, and they begin to exercise these demons. Now watch this, verse 15. The evil spirit answered. Now that's creepy. Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are you? Now, they knew Jesus. The Bible says that even the demons fear God. Yeah. At the name of Jesus, demons flee. They know Jesus. And they know Paul. Paul's the kind of guy that when he wakes up, the devil goes, damn, he's awake. Because Paul wakes up in prayer and in the word. And his steps are ordered daily by prayer, waiting upon the spirit, empowerment. They say, Paul, I know, but who are you? 
Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them. So one guy takes on eight dudes. Overpowered. This was before PCP, crystal meth, right? Overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked, naked and wounded. So he beats the daylights out of them. They're bleeding and they're buck naked running through the streets. That's not a good day for an itinerant Jewish exorcist. Yeah. Now they're running to a nudist colony. Where do we go? Let's... Anybody got a Band-Aid? And of course, something that spectacular of naked, itinerant Jewish exorcists running through the streets. Verse 17, this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. <laughs> Did you see those guys? And as they're running down the street, fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Magnified because they failed? No, magnified because even the devil magnified the Lord when he says, Paul I know and Jesus I know. And they're realizing, wait a minute, you don't screw around with evil. And they'd seen that guy before, and that that, that, that guy would acknowledge that Paul has power and Jesus has power. And these guys who had had this gimmick going on got pummeled. They realized we are entrapped and enslaved in a system that is more powerful than us. And great is, is, is Diana of the Ephesians. And, and you saw what happened with Aphrodite and the temple prostitutes. We've gone through all this. This whole city was enveloped in, in a government that was inundated with evil. It was, it was a system, I would even go as far as to say it was a government union of silversmiths that held together the temple that operated the city. Michelle and I have been to Ephesus, so is Molly. And, and there were 172 pillars 60 feet high. It was one of the seven, seven wonders of the ancient world. Some of these pillars, well, they, they, they discovered, they, they thought that, it, that Ephesus had, had um, disappeared or never existed, but in, in 1865 they found it, and in 1965 they began to unearth it. And, and today when you go through Ephesus, you can, it, it's, it's fascinating. We, we saw the library, and they've unearthed. It's one of the coolest places to visit, and I want to take a trip there when we do the footsteps of Paul after we do our trip to Israel fascinating we're walking through and and it's so new in its excavation i'm certain that they've done more since we've been there but we would just kind of dig in the dirt a little bit and you pull out ancient roman glass and you get a big piece of ancient roman glass you're like whoa and this is stuff that they sell in jewelry stores for an enormous amount of money you're just finding it in the remains in ephesus and and you're seeing it you're thinking this city is spectacular well here um uh everybody is is Fear fell on everyone, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified through the whole city. Who did that? The Holy Spirit. Empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And, and verse 18, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Okay, so where does revival begin? With the church. And how does revival begin? Prayer's good, but here, what, what do we see? Say it again. Confession. Confession of what? Confessing and telling their evil deeds. Do we really want revival? We really want to come clean and be honest? 
Jay Benor says that revival's like judgment day and it begins in the church. When you just realize this is a game I've been playing. Christianity is a joke. And I am inundated with idol worship. I've compromised and lied and deceived and I come to church every day with a gimmick. And the church is inundated with idols. In the ministry, you can do anything you want as long as the numbers are good. Right? As long as you're functioning, it's okay. As long as you can put on a face, it's okay. If your Bible's big enough or you can speak the right language or raise your hand and shake them just the right way when you sing. But it's... I was talking to Tom Steffen, the pastor at the Monta Vista Press. We had a neat time today. I I told him a story I've told you guys about my friend um, who works for DevGrew uh, Special Forces Unit and how he can pull up the websites you looked at. You just give him an email address and he can pull up websites you've looked at eight months ago. And and my question to him is, how how do you get off the grid? And i never forget his response. He says, why would you want to get off the grid? Why don't you just have your private life match your public life and vice versa? What are you trying to hide? See, if we're hiding something, we obviously aren't serving the Lord because we're not impressed with what he thinks. And and the Holy Spirit hasn't taken a hold of our heart. We have idols. And we're willing to live a deceptive life for the sake of the idol. An idol causes us to compromise the things God wants to do in and through us. And so they began confessing and telling their deeds. Why confess? I remember one time when I uh, was on a cross-cultural immersion class with a seminary and um, uh, Rick Warren came to speak to the seminary students. There's about 15 or 20 of us in a room, just a private time with Rick Warren. And he shared out of 1 John, and he got to 1 John 1, 9, and says, uh, if we confess our sins one to another, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And, and he said, that's, that's a repentance unto relationship, not unto salvation. It's a confession unto restoration, not unto salvation. And he goes, let me explain to you. And he said, does anyone know who you really are? Is there anyone in the world who, who knows who you really are? And that hit me. Does anyone know any, everything about me? I mean, yeah, God's forgiven me, but the, the devil's always reminding you of the lie you're living. And what happens when you bring it into the light as he is in the light and confess your sins one to another? Fungus only grows in darkness. And I remember I was struggling and and one of the things that's helped me in the course of my life, and I'd like to say that I'm walking sin free, but one of the things that's helped me, especially with Michelle, is a thing that I struggle with. I told her, this is what I'm like when I'm doing it. This is where I go to get it. 
this, and I, I laid everything out. I just put it into the light. And, and, and she can look at me having all of the deception and, and, and the lies and the, you know, I'm just tired. Why well, don't feel well? She can look at me now. Just look at me and know because I've already laid it out there. That's, that's, that's the idea. Does that make sense? That's the purpose of confession is to walk in light, to walk in honesty. And so they begin to confess and they tell their deeds. Verse 19, also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. This is, this is an unbelievable amount of money. I remember when John Overstreet and I gave our heart to the Lord in our dorm room in Fresno and he started to throw out his record collection. It was a phenomenal, today it'd be worth a fortune. And we're just breaking these things and just chucking them into the, and we're rejoicing. And everyone's going, what are you doing? I want that. No, I'm not giving you this trash and they're just chucking it. Now, why would I give this to you? And people were stunned. And, and it was just this idea, I want my life to count for the Lord. And laying it all out there. And they begin to burn their magic books and all these things of incantations and, and deceptions and lies and curses. And, and they, just, they just put it out there. I don't want anything getting in the way of my relationship with the Lord. I want my private life to match my public life, right? So the word of the Lord, then what? Verse 20, what did the word of the Lord do? Grew mightily and what? It prevailed, it had power. You know why you have no power? Because you're not honest. You're not transparent. Your life doesn't match what you're saying, and you're, you're saying not what you're doing kind of thing. Here, the minute they do that, the word of God grows mightily and it prevails. Now watch what happens. People start getting bold because they're, they're, they want purity for themselves and for their culture and their community, and they're starting to change the way they operate. And as you have said, with the revival in Wales, they had to retrain the pack animals because they wouldn't operate from people cussing at them. And when all the workers had converted to Christ, they wouldn't cuss anymore, so the animals wouldn't operate. They had to retrain all of them. And in Wales, they, they had a number of bankruptcies because all the bars shut down. Uh, barbershop quartets came because policemen had nothing to do because there was no one to arrest, so they started singing in churches. Slavery ended in the British Empire with revival. Culture begins to rapidly transform and change. And when these things were accomplished and all this stuff started to happen, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And so he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. So, you know, making jokes about Christianity for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So they had a union of craftsmen, and this was a, like a city union. It was, a, in a sense, a government union because the temple of Diana was the city center, and, and they worked for the city center. And, and you know, for example, the Cavley Theater or the Sure Forum, it's a union hall. So, so you know, if, if you go there and you rent it and you want to move a chair, they go, hey, you can't touch that. We've got to get one of our workers, and right now he's on break. And you have to pay for his break, and they can only work so many hours. And then if you go over, you have to pay time and a half, and it's, it's cost prohibitive. Well, this is the idea. It was a government union, and, and it was a union of, of silver craftsmen, and they brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. 
This is how we make our living. And they are screwing the city up because nobody's worshiping Diana anymore. They're all into the way. And they're all converting to Christianity. And we got to shut this down because it's ruining our trade. Now, who stands in opposition uh, to the pro-life movement? No, not necessarily. More than others, but abortion clinics. And why? It is an enormously lucrative business. They make a fortune. Uh, Dr. Gosnell, Gosnell? That man had a separate entrance for blacks and a separate entrance for white women and black women. And, and women, women got un- unbelievable diseases and hepatitis from unclean instruments that he used. He, he murdered, and it was awful. Nobody ever talked about that. It's, it was never even brought out. They're going to do a documentary on it, and they're going to. And and after those videos of selling baby parts, who's the one that's gotten arrested is now facing. Forget the fact that they were selling baby parts. They're going to arrest them for soliciting the purchase of baby parts, let alone that they were willing to sell them. Forget that. They're not indicted. Let's indict the guy who had no intention but used it to show that they were willing. Because it is a profitable business. And we certainly don't want to shut down our tax money that that goes to the government that they pay for these. And so their whole occupation is shutting down and it's all based on conscience. You know why they didn't want to get rid of slavery in the British Empire? They wouldn't have sugar for their tea. You know what Christians began to do? Drink tea without sugar. We'll do whatever's necessary to stop you people from enslaving other human beings. We'll be inconvenienced. We'll do whatever's necessary. And so these folks, evil is, is organizing together to stop this while people are walking in purity and being delivered from bondage. And he says, um, verse 26, more of you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Paul's sermon from the Areopagus in Mars was quoted by these folks. His reputation went before him, and they're thinking this, this seventh wonder of the world will be in disrepair. Our city is going to lose one of our greatest assets and we're going to lose this cash cow that people come from all over the world and 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 there's a whole story that a meteor fell from the sky and how it all occurred and and they built this temple around it and it was again the seventh wonder of the world and we're going to lose this and and all of a sudden it becomes about money becomes about money politics when it becomes an idol is all about money and power and it was Winston Churchill that said that in, in, in Europe, politics was always about power, but in America, it was always a, 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 a battle for the truth. And he says, and I, I fear that America is now seeing politics as a push for power. And that's really where we've come. You see, when it's, when it's a, a, a thought for truth, we can debate but now we no longer debate. We just annihilate and then we just go and have judicial tyranny and judicial fiat. And we just bypass a legislature where you can develop ideas and thoughts and debate them and come to a consensus and an understanding and work through ideas and truth. 
and, and find these things. And you have a balance of power. Now we've just scrapped all that. It just If we can just get people on the Supreme Court, we're going to win this. And so when they heard this, verse 28, they were filled with wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. <laughs> Doesn't this sound familiar? Hands up, don't shoot. Did that happen, by the way? It never happened. But if you say it long enough, it becomes true. You say it long enough, it becomes true. And then the narrative is set into the culture. That's why Donald Trump is so brilliant. He, he, he narrates to the culture what truth is. And you just hide the slide and just, if you can win the, 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 the bumper sticker clip that goes into the mind and keep repeating it, people will forget and start to believe the lie instead of the truth. And they just began quoting, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the, of the Ephesians. Full of wrath, they were crying out, and the whole city was filled with confusion. What, what in the world? Who's the author of confusion, by the way? Satan. I, that's the hardest thing with sin, is you, you sit and you go, ah, it's just confusing to me. Well, that's Satan. Satan is the author of confusion. And they rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus. Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. So they grab these two guys and they're dragging them into the city and they don't even know why they're dragging them. They're all just saying, greatest Diana of the Ephesians, why are we here? I don't know, but we're all in this together. And, and ACT UP and, and the ACORN and all these, they go and they, they get these wayward kids and they pay them a little bit of money and they give them a sign and they, they go and they protest. They don't even know why they're there. They have no clue why they're there. And everybody starts chanting and they create a cultural shift. And, and then it says in verse 30, and when Paul wanted to go into the people... The disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent him sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they, they drew Alexander out of the multitude, and the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. You know, uh, anti-Semitism uh, you, you, is taking on a whole different uh, meaning in, in the world today. You, you, because of the Holocaust and, and because of these things, you can't be against Jews. So here's the new anti-Semitism. Just be against Israel. Be against, uh, you know, any, any sovereign right they have. Be in favor of the Palestinian Authority. Be in favor of... And, and sanction them and hold them in derision. And really, what other nation do we do that with? Could you imagine Canada telling us how to operate? Or Mexico telling us how to operate? A sovereign nation, established boundaries, all these things, <clears throat> and the world tells them what to do. It, it's just another form of anti-Semitism. And every city, because they're Jews, they're targets. Why are they being targeted in France? Why are they being targeted in Germany? Targeted around the world. The worst passport in the world to have is a Jewish passport, Israeli passport. You are a target anywhere you go in the world. And if you've ever gone to Israel, you're going to see some of the most amazing people, the Sabras, they're, they're natives of the land. And, and you just, they're, they're tough. They're like, this is all we got. And, and they, when they get off the plane, you see this, this heart for the land. They get off the plane, they kiss the ground when they land. When the plane lands in Israel, guess what they do? They all clap. Every time a plane lands, they clap. You'll see it when we get there. They all clap when the plane lands. Here in America, you land, oh, God, I can't, I've got to get home. I go get my luggage. It's stupid. 
They, they can't believe that they, they've returned to the land. Why do they, they like Masada? It was the last vestige of a Jewish government before the Romans evacuated them. Uh, the, the makva, which is the, um, the last printed coin of a Jewish nation. And, and this is their heart for the land. Well, they find out they're Jewish and they cry out for about two hours, great as Diana the Ephesians, and they're just starting this, this mob. Verse 35, and when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, and I love this, the city clerk, a political official comes out and ends it. He comes out and he just waits for him to get a little tired. And the city clerk comes out and he quiets the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you've brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give it to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. What happens in a mob? People die. What happens when anarchy and chaos rule? Stores get thrashed and burned, and communities are destroyed. Nobody, nobody works anything out. Nobody co- communicates. Nobody dialogues. What causes a city to get to a place like that? Confusion, abuse, um, division, strife, deception. And, and it, it does to a city what it does to a church. And, and what brings in the order? Why did God in the Noahic Covenant create government? To protect man. Government protects man. It's supposed to. And you bring order and you have a, a court system and you hold each other accountable and laws are supposed to be just and we govern one another and the city clerk comes out and people start to realize we've got a really nice city because everybody gets along. And really what he's doing, it, it, people can have the freedom to walk away from just because you're losing your trade doesn't mean we're supposed to kill everybody. Come on, give us a break. We walked away. We don't want your silver anymore. And I don't even know why we're arguing. Why are we yelling? And they, they just disperse. And Michelle and I have stood in this amphitheater. And you can imagine two hours in this amphitheater of yelling. It is, it is, uh, it's like a big megaphone. You can stand at the top and somebody at the bottom, you can whisper and you can hear the person. You can imagine everyone for two hours, greatest Diana of the Ephesians, greatest Diana of the Ephesians. Heck no, we won't go. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it now? What do we want? Justice. What do we want now? And they're doing this for two hours. And finally, the city clerk just comes out and he goes, I think they're tired now. As he walks out and he just puts his hand up. Like, oh, it's the city clerk. He's probably wearing a vestige of, of importance that they recognize. They've been trained to honor that. He comes with a Roman authority. Hey, look, you guys keep this up. and We're going to have to face uh, something even bigger. Because there's no reason for this outburst. They go, yeah, let's all go home. I'm tired anyways. What's for dinner? And they just disperse. And, and, I, and I look at this because what happened when the Apostle Paul got saved? And what happened when the Apostle Paul started going into cities? The culture began to change. And why did the culture change? Because Paul touched their idols you know what Paul's idol was? Religiosity. And he was willing to kill for that. 
And he's willing to imprison people unjustly. And when he was confronted, and this is the amazing thing, you'll get new ideas from reading books, but when you read the Bible and you let it speak into your life and shine that light into the dark crevices of your idols and you repent of them, the word will take root and be greatly magnified in your life and you will be a culture changer. You'll step into areas where you'll transform the area you step into. Uh, Carolyn's back there. She walked in with the love of the Lord in a council meeting and her words touched every member. And one of the things she said one time was she said, thank you. And I remember Tom Hunt saying, thank you. I remember I leaned over to the city attorney who was struggling with breast cancer, her hair had fallen out through chemotherapy. And as Tom said, thank you, she said, he's very nice. I said, you know, that man's been praying for you by name. She goes, does he go to your church? I said, he does. She goes, would you tell him thank you? I said, I will. And then Carolyn came up when she said thank you. Um, she leaned over and she says, does she go to your church too? And I said, yeah, how'd you know? She said, because she said thank you. And Andy Fox, when he was sitting to my left, same thing occurred. He goes, they must be from your church. They're pleasant. They weren't caustic and divisive. And they were there and they cared. And, and their actions. I remember when uh, Vadim spoke during the marijuana issue and he stood up and he spoke. It changed the whole dynamic of the room. Now, stay with your idols and stay home in your seat and be comfortable. Certainly don't examine your life with the power of the word so that you would repent and confess and be magnified and transformed and used to change a culture. Just let the culture affect you and quietly, like an ember, just grow cold. And that's what's happening to the church. And last one out, turn off the light. Not our church, but the church in general. We're in a postmodern world. We don't affect the culture anymore because we're unwilling to engage it. Because to engage it, this is the worst part. When you step into the world, they are going to examine every part of your life. And most people are afraid. And so they like to navigate through the shadows. And this is the power of what happened in Ephesus. It transformed Europe as we know it, all because people repented. And that's revival is transparency and honesty and repenting of your idols. The idols are things that are more important to you than God. And guess what they're doing? The Bible says you become like that which you worship. Idols are dead. You're dying. It's killing you. Me, us. If God's going to use a church, the vessel has to be clean, right?